number of years ago, I received a letter from a young woman in our congregation. And when I do share a story from people in our church, I always ask permission because I want them to feel like, you know, if you tell me something, I'm not going to say anything. But she gave permission. She said, Pastor, if this will help others, by all means, use it. So she writes a letter sharing what was happening in her soul. And the letter said, it started out, I've been feeling really out of sorts lately. I'm quite frustrated. I pray and read the Bible until I'm blue in the face. But the problems just keep coming back. I might be happy on the outside, but on the inside, it's a different story. It's a constant battle day in and day out. It's extremely hard on me mentally and physically. And when a person has this playing on their spirits, it's hard to enjoy things, especially life. Why me, Lord, I cry. Please, God, deliver me out of this distress I'm in. I don't understand all of this. I need to be delivered from this nonsense. Please pray for me. I need strength from the Lord very badly. It's worse than I'll ever be able to explain. When people ask me how I'm doing, I don't tell them the truth. I say, fine, but really, I'm not fine. I get a release sometimes, but it doesn't last long, unfortunately. I have wished many times that God would just let me die. At least I would not have to suffer anymore. I must admit that I have considered suicide, but I wouldn't succeed or get anywhere doing such a thing anyways because I do really love the Lord, and He has actually been good to me. Do you believe God will protect me from the absolute worst? I hope and pray that I won't end up in the mental health unit. I've been on this trip so long And it doesn't seem to go away. And I know the Bible says not to fret or stew or worry, but to trust in the Lord. Well, that's easier said than done. I'm between a rock and a hard place, totally stuck, with no way out whatsoever. I get extremely tired at times. I have no energy, no enthusiasm, no nothing. I go into my room and I cry like I've lost my best friend. I've never been through such an ordeal in my whole life. Now, What this young woman is describing is actually one of the fastest growing emotional problems in our world. And that's simply the area of depression. This is what depression is like. Now, I don't think depression is like, you know, we have degrees of it. I think sometimes we can be discouraged. I think sometimes we can experience despair. I think there are moments in our lives where we are blue or we're depressed. And then I think there are times when people just can't seem to get out of this state. And then, you know, I would recommend seeing a doctor. That's important. And I think it does affect us, you know, chemically. There's nothing, that, that does happen. But I think that, you know, depression many times is a spiritual thing. And we need to understand it from that side of things. As a matter of fact, it is estimated that at least 5% uh, of our population is suffering from depression. W.G. Reese in a 1970 medical journal stated that depression was the leading cause of suicide in the United States. That's pretty sad. In that same study, he discovered that it was the second leading cause of death among students, which is interesting. And I think we see, even in our city, how many young people have taken their own lives. And there have been a lot of emotional upheaval in our situation. You know, it's really fascinating, Don. This was done by uh, the Minner Meyer Clinic, who are Christian psychologists. They said this it was found, depression was found three times more often in higher 
socioeconomic groups, which supports the old saying that money cannot buy happiness. In other words, depression seems to be an emotional situation that is focused in on people who have more affluence or a society that is more affluent. In other words, we're looking around and we're seeing what other people seem to be having in our life and we seem to be unhappy with our present condition. That's, that's not the only reasons for depression. That's just you know, one aspect of it. I think there's a lot of reasons. I think, you know, we, we lose someone we love. It's depression sets in. Or, you know, we experience a divorce. And that's a very devastating experience. And depression sets in. Maybe you're here today struggling with depression. Or maybe you're fine, but you're immediately reminded of someone you know who struggles. Maybe not necessarily with depression, but with despair. And they're walking through all kinds of emotional anxiety or difficulty in their life. And, you know, you, you know people struggling with this. So what should we do? How can we handle? How can we help? Uh, what kind of a source of encouragement can we help with people battling with depression? Or maybe, what can I do if I'm struggling with this in my own personal life? And I believe one of the greatest supports to depression is that others care for them. There's people around that truly, genuinely care, number one. Number two, I think that we have people who know how to pray. And you're going to see how powerful prayer really is in a person's life. You know, David, in a very low point in his life who, you know, had actually his, the village that he was living in, they had gone off, his village was raided, his family and all of their earthly goods were taken. And when he got back to his village, he and his men, they were so despairing, they were so down that they even, you know, and it's true, usually when we're this low, we always try to find someone to be upset about. Isn't it true? We have a tendency to blame other people. And so we can get upset with God. We can get upset with others. The men of David decided to be upset with David and talked about stoning David to death. Now, David not only lost his family, but now his life is in jeopardy. How many know that's a low point in your life? And the Bible says... David found hope in God. In other words, he turned to God in his deepest hour, found strength, gained God's wisdom, and was able to lead his men to rescue their families. Now, I think we need to realize that even some of God's greatest saints have battled despair and depression. You know, I think of Elijah. He knew what it was like to experience depression. As a matter of fact, number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I took a course by a medical doctor on depression. And everything that you read in 1 Kings chapter 19, after Elijah's great victory on Mount Carmel, the next chapter is a clinical analysis of what depression looks like. I've even spoken on that in the past. But, you know, Job, how many know he was battling depression? You cannot lose you know, your, everything about your life. He lost his children in tragic, a tragedy, a, you know, a terrible uh, natural catastrophe. His children were destroyed by a windstorm, all 10 of them. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. And, uh, you know, he was battling with despair and even, I think, measures of depression. And then there was a person by the name of C.S. Lewis, a very well-known Christian apologist and uh, an intellect, studied, you know, and taught at Cambridge and Oxford, and he wrote in his book, After the Loss of His Wife Joy to Cancer. This is what he writes. He said, meanwhile, where is God? Now, he's explaining his emotional feeling. Where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, 
You will be, or so it feels, that you'll be welcomed with open arms. In other words, when things are going good, it just seems like, you know, God loves me and it's all good and I can go to him at any time. That's what he's talking about. But then he says this, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? He says, a door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting, double bolting on the inside. In other words, it seems like God's not going to let you get to him. He says, after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. In other words, you feel like God's not there. You feel like God doesn't really care. It seems like if God really loved me and cared about me, why would he allow me to experience this in my life at this time? And that's a strong emotion in our lives. So people who struggle with loss uh, can experience the sense many times of this abandonment by God, the sense of being forsaken. And I think great Christian writers have spoken of moments like this, and they call it the, the dark night of the soul. What makes this so difficult in our minds is that God doesn't seem to be hearing or responding. And we interpret that as God doesn't care. Psalms 31 says it this way. I'm quoting from the message. I cried my eyes out. I feel hollow inside. My life leaks away. Groan by groan, my years fade out in size. My troubles have worn me out and turned my bones to powder. How many say that's a pretty graphic description of someone who feels like, you know, there's nothing left. They're just being drained. You know what? What we need to understand, though, is God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. So if God is saying that, and yet we feel abandoned, what's really going on? And I'm convinced that what God is doing is he's deepening our lives. He's drawing us to himself through this moment in our lives. Now, how many know if you're physically exercising to strengthen yourself, what you're actually doing is, you know, tearing muscle? Isn't that kind of an irony? In one sense, you're weakening yourself in order to be strengthened. And I believe that God allows things to come into our life that appear to be weakening us, but the reality is it's actually strengthening us. And when we go through those trials, those difficulties, those hardships, as we come out on the other side, we have now experienced and new knowledge that God was there through the whole journey, that he was strengthening and comforting and directing through the whole time. And so that now we have a deeper faith, a greater confidence in God's goodness so that when later on in life we experience something maybe even more challenging, we have an experience in our backlog of God's faithfulness and say, you know what? I've been here before. I know what this is about. I know God will see me through. And so the psalmist now expresses this dark night of the soul experience in Psalm 22. And I believe that Jesus literally lived out the psalm. Jesus expressed it from the darkest hour of his human life when he was dying on the cross. And so I think we can learn from this psalm that God is not indifferent to our sorrow, suffering, and pain, that he actually suffers with us. The one distinction between, you know, a Judeo-Christian understanding, a biblical understanding, and other faith is simply how God reveals himself. In most faiths, God is seen as transcendent and all-powerful. And yet in Christianity, what we have is the suffering God, the one who suffers 
on our behalf, the one who suffers with us, the one who knows our hurts and feels our pains as we're about to, re- to discover. And so I want to take a look at two dynamics this morning about God and about our struggles. And the first one is simply the depths of human despair. And some of you, you say, I'm an expert in this area, Pastor. I know what it is to despair, you know. And I think some of us are more prone to struggle and despair than others. Maybe part of it's our temperament. But some of it is our circumstances in life are very difficult. Now, we all know that, you know, and and intrinsically know that we were designed to be understood and accepted and loved. But that's not all our experiences, isn't it? Some of us have experienced rejection and heartache and brokenness. And so, you know, we begin to question our value sometimes, or we begin to question God's goodness. You know, if God really loved me, why is he letting me go through this experience? You know, think of some of the experiences that are painful. You know, the loss of a spouse, a loss of a child to death, divorce, where a person feels rejected and abandoned the forsakenness and but to be forsaken by god seems to be the ultimate experience of devastation and so we see here in psalm 22 the spiritual anguish being expressed in these opening words in psalm 22 verse 1 he reads there my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and am not silent. So what he's saying is, day and night I'm praying, and I don't get anything. You know, it feels like, God, you're a trillion miles away. It seems like you have no interest in my life, because nothing is changing. You know, what seems so bad is that God is not hearing. There's a silence on the other end. You know, that that is so frustrating. Uh, So why isn't God responding to me? It's a great question. And the problem is, the psalmist who has faith in God knows that God's a prayer answering God. So he knows from other experiences by his people in the past that God has answered prayer. Then why doesn't God answer my prayer? See, it says here in verse 3, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In, our fa- in, in, in you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. I know my history as a Jewish person here, he's saying. I know my history as a Christian person as I look through the New Testament. God, you're a delivering God. God, you're a prayer answering God. But why aren't you answering my prayers? They cried to you and were saved. And in you they trusted and were not disappointed. God, I feel like I'm not being saved. I'm not being healed. And I am disappointed. Are you getting a picture of the frustration of this person struggling? And and so a person who struggles with despair or depression, it just seems that when other people are getting answers, it seems to be adding insult to injury. Isn't that true? You know, a lot of times, uh, I think there's probably nothing worse than in being in pain around people who are celebrating. You know, like, why is it so good for them and so bad for me? We have that tendency to look around. Why is life not treating me as it should? And why, why are these people, you know, celebrating life and I am struggling through life? It just does not seem fair. And I'm, I've been faithful to you, God, and I've been praying, and nothing seems to be happening. 
So the depressed person begins to wonder, how can others enjoy life when they're suffering? And God is quickly blamed for being unjust, unkind, and uncaring. So life to a person who's experiencing this dark night of the soul because of pain and loss is looking at life through a lens. Now, how many know we talk about rose-colored glasses? What does that mean if I say rose-colored glasses? That means that that person is looking at life through an optimistic view, right? Everything seems to be good. And you know, it's easy to be an optimist when life is good, right? But how many people, you know, they don't have a rose-colored lens. They have a dark, shaded lens. They've experienced disappointment. They've experienced abuse, manipulation. They're struggling financially, maybe physically, emotionally, mentally. And so when they look at life, they don't have rose-colored glasses on. They've got dark shades on. Everything seems to be dark. You can easily become hard-hearted, cynical, angry, frustrated, embittered. Isn't that true? Come on now. And that's what's happening to people all around us every day. People are being shaped many times by what's happened to them. And that's a tragedy that we can all slip into, that we can allow what happens to us to begin to define how we're going to live our lives. Isn't it amazing when you meet a person who has gone through so much in their life and they're full of joy? Doesn't it just, all of a sudden you go, wow, how can they be like that? How can they transcend all of the pain and hurt in their life? And then they're just, they're, they're so full of love and joy. And we just look at them and we go, man, I just, I'm connecting to that person. But I believe that, you know, God wants to bring us to that place through our experiences in life. And so we need to understand the way of God with humanity and how he develops faith in our life. I've already suggested he's going to strengthen us by causing us to have to endure some things. He's going to deepen us by how we have to experience some difficult things in our lives. Otherwise, we never mature. Now, how many know when you're a parent, you know, you have a child crying in the other room? They're in the crib. You walk over. What are the things you're looking for? Is this child hungry? Is this child soiled his pants, right? Um, is the child sick? We're trying to cross off because they're too young to communicate. Isn't there kind of a list you're kind of crossing off in your mind as a parent going to check on the child, right? Are they overtired? What's going on with this child? But then eventually we discover that sometimes children just cry for the sake of crying. They want their way. How many have discovered that? And that's one way to communicate it. You know, I want my way. I'm demanding my way, right? You know, now that's okay when they're like, you know, nine months old. But when they're 35 years old, you know, it's not so pleasant. And there are some people who have never really developed in their life. It's all about them. They're very self-focused. You know, they cry and they expect everyone to run and meet their needs. And we, we look at those people and just go, wow, what's wrong with them? These people have never matured. They've never really developed. Because we see maturing is, one of the expressions of it is when we can live past ourselves. When we think that we're not at the center of the universe any longer and we begin to see beyond ourselves and we begin to be concerned about other people. That's a sign of maturity. And we love seeing that. And the child begins to see beyond themselves. We're going, this is so good. They're developing. They're maturing. And God is interested in you and I developing and maturing. Isn't that true? He wants us to do that in our lives. He, and so he allows certain situations to come into our lives so that we have to practice things like endurance and handle hardship and develop perseverance and develop patience in our lives. 
Those are all important qualities. So what I'm saying here today is your agenda and God's agenda may or may not be alike. And I can tell you how you know. God's agenda is to make you like himself. Our agenda sometimes is to do our own thing and have God serve us. And I see a lot of Christians, you know, upset with God because they want God to do what they want rather than to submit their wills and say, okay, God, I'm interested in allowing your agenda in my life to be accomplished, which is to make me more like you, more unselfish, more giving, more forgiving, more forbearing, more kind. You know, all these amazing things, less frustrated, less upset about life, less angry, more trusting, more hope-filled. Right? Sure. Now, there's times in our lives when we're walking through a dark place, we question if life will ever become normal again, whatever that normal was. And maybe God doesn't want that normal back. Maybe God wants a different normal in your life, and we have to adjust to a new normal. But here's what we need to know when we're going through that dark moment. And it says in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 8 and 9, It says, surely they are my people. God was talking about Israel and all of the things they were experiencing. Sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. He was a deliverer. He delivered them out of their oppression. And it says, in all of their distress, he too was distressed. I love this. Here's a part where God says, I'm identifying with you in your sufferings. In other words, when you suffer, I suffer. So when you and I are hurting, God is hurting. When you and I are crying, God is crying. God is not indifferent to people in plight, oppressed, and in pain. I've read the Bible carefully many times. God seems to be concerned about the marginalized. God's concerned about the outcast. God's concerned about the stranger, the alien, the widow, the orphan, the people that are at the bottom of the pile, the people who are oppressed by others. God is their champion. He's concerned about those individuals. And we see this expressed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. So all this beautiful verse is saying is that Jesus, you know, God became a human being and suffered humanity's liabilities. And yet he didn't sin. Isn't that amazing? So he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be, you know, sad. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be rejected. You know, he understands all of these human emotions and experiences because he's walked through being what it's like to be a human being. And then it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, Jesus so touched with our, 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 our human weaknesses that he is now interceding. The Bible says he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. So when you and I are praying, Jesus is praying. He's praying for us. He's praying with us. And he's encouraging us to come to God when we feel least deserving of it. Because usually what happens is when we, when we feel deserving, then we're frustrated if we don't get an answer. But a lot of times we just don't deserve his help. And yet at the very moment we feel like giving up, he's encouraging us here. Come with confidence. Come with boldness. The moment you feel the most unworthy, we're told to come this way. Usually we want to run away from God and we've done the wrong thing. God says, no, come to me. 
I'm here to help you. God, I'm on your side. God wants to help us. You'll find that when we don't deserve, what's waiting for us is God's favor. That's what grace is. Isn't that neat? God's going to show you favor. He's there to give us mercy, which means he's not going to give us what we deserve. Because sometimes what we deserve and what God gives us is two different things. You know, if I come to God based on what I deserve, I'm going to be disappointed. Because what I really want from God is what I need. And what I need from God is his favor. And how many know when you experience favor, it changes you? I remember I was a young person just starting in high school. Our school started in grade 8. So I, went to, I attended the largest high school in British Columbia at the time. There were 600 students in grade 8. That's a big school, right? And I remember one day I was in English class, and I had this English teacher, and she had never been married, and she was overweight. And some of us young men were pretty not nice about our remarks, Okay. And how many know sometimes when you're young, you don't, do a lot of, you don't have a lot of wisdom? I didn't have a lot of wisdom then. And we were saying things, and they, they were nasty, and they weren't nice. And I don't know if she overheard us or what, but I remember sitting in class that day, and she did something I'll never forget. She picked me out, and she spoke well of me. And you know what that did? It shamed me. Because I remember just minutes before speaking not so well of her. And at that moment, something happened on the inside. I realized, I'm wrong. What I did was wrong. What I did was nasty. And I owned it. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to speak about this teacher ever again. I don't care what my friends say or anybody else in the class says. You know, I did not deserve to be spoken well of, but she did that. And I've discovered one thing in life, probably the most profound thing that changes a person is when people treat us not the way we should be treated, but they treat us far better than what we should be treated. It affects us in a big-time way. And I believe that's why God shows love towards us even when we don't deserve it because he's capable of giving it. He's not so little. He's not so small in his soul that he cannot love us in spite of our, our weaknesses and our nastiness, our sin. He can handle all of that stuff. Well, not only was there a spiritual dimension expressed in the psalm, but there's a deeply emotional anguish also expressed. I'm moving on. Oh, I see. Don't move on too fast, Paul. There. Not only is there a divine sense of abandonment, but also human rejection. How many know, you know, it's one thing where we go, oh, maybe God's there, maybe he's not. But when human beings reject us, we know it. Because we can see it. We can feel it, right? We experience it. And there's nothing more painful than to have people turn on you. People who once loved you and are now rejecting you or betraying you or battering you with anger. Listen to what it says in verse 6. He says, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Now think about what Jesus had done. If you study his life, all he had done was heal people, do good to people. And what does he get for that? They crucified him. How many would feel a little bit like, wow, I created these human beings, I've loved these human beings, I've done good to these human beings, and now they crucify me. You know, if we were God, we'd probably just say, I'm going to just destroy the planet. I don't have to put up with this garbage. Come on now. Wouldn't you be a little bit dis disappointed in your creation that they crucify you after every good thing you've done to them? But what does he say from the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's an amazing statement to me. He says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their heads. They're scoffing. You know, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. 
Do you know there's nothing worse than to have, you know, people scoffing at you when you're in a downtime? You know, have you ever been at the bottom of the pile and then people pile on? Anybody relate to that experience? This is a low point in my life. And you know, when you think somebody would reach down to help you up, what do they do? They just pile on. They just make everything the worst. They just, you know, you're down already and they're dumping even more. You're just going, really? That's not what I need right now. I need a hand up, not another fist coming down, right? You know, and so here we see this, this, uh, this pain when people are not supportive of us and our need. Now, I, I know I can, I'm going to pick on poor Job's wife, but, you know, Job and his wife, they had gone through a lot, wouldn't you say? I mean, they had, in, in a tragic moment, he had lost his entire, ch- all of their children. Ten children were killed in a, in a calamity, a, a, a weather calamity. You know, it'd be like today, a hurricane came through or a tornado came through and killed their children. Could you imagine how devastating it would be to lose all of your children in one day? That would be crushing, Okay. And then he lost his wealth because there were raiders that came in and stole everything he had. So all of his, you know, his wealth, because they were tied into herds, were all destroyed in another day. And then on top of that, Job became deathly sick. He was so sick. Nobody wanted to be around him. I mean, he oozed bad stuff. He stunk, you know. He, you know, was in bad condition. And so finally, you know, Job's wife, who was also hurting, this is what she says to her husband. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? And then Job says to her, hey, listen, you can't talk like that. That's how foolish women would talk. Now, foolish here is not stupid. It's somebody that's morally deprived, somebody that doesn't understand. She's saying, you can't talk like a non-believer. That's what he's basically saying to her. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, we always think, you know, God is obligated to always do us good. He's saying, no, no, we can't think that way. God should be able to bring whatever he wants to in our lives, and we should be able to handle that. Don't just act like, you know, life always should be good. God owes me. We have so developed this entitlement thinking in our culture that we think everybody owes us. I don't know where we've gotten this from. It's not healthy. You know, we've got to get out of that thing. We've got to be delivered from that. So Job basically makes this outstanding declaration of faith. Isn't it amazing? in the midst of this dark night of the soul, in the most terrible time in his life, where he feels God has abandoned him, this is what Job says in chapter 13. Even if God kills me, he said, I'm going to still put my hope in him. I'm going to still trust him. I'm going to look to God. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm going to just trust God. That was probably one of the most profound declarations of faith. And, And I think God is looking for us in spite of all that's happening to us, to say, God, I don't get what's going on. I don't understand it. I've had moments in my life where I go, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. And God doesn't owe us an explanation. And, you know, I preached on the book of Job for two years, and at the very end of the message, I said something I think that was good, you know. It really hit me anyways. Maybe it didn't do anything for you, but it really spoke to me. And it was simply this. God never did explain to Job why he allowed him to go through all that difficulty. And basically, Job was satisfied because God, even though God didn't answer him, God came to him and his presence was there. And I said, what do you want, an answer or the presence of God? And Job was happy with the presence of God. Excuse me. And And that's where I'm at. If God be for me, who can be against me? If I have God's presence, I'm satisfied. And God says to me in his word, I'll never leave you. I'm with you. 
I go, God, I'm satisfied. So I don't have all the answers. But I'm okay with that because I know the one who has all the answers. And as long as he's with me and, and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, I'm going, hey, I'm, I'm okay. I can handle life. I can handle what's happening here, God, because you're there. And that's all that matters. That's the most important thing. You know, it's interesting that Jesus challenges us in Luke's gospel, chapter 18. You know what he says? We should always pray. He told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not to give up. King James says not to faint. You know, I wrote in my Bible one day, I said, if I'm praying, I will not be giving up. If I'm praying, I'll not be fainting. And if I'm fainting, I'm probably not praying. How's that? Is that good? Better right on. That's good. I like that. I say to myself, and then at the end of that parable, the the crux of the issue, Jesus asked the question, you know, when the Son of Man comes back to earth, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, God is challenging us to trust him. You know, you ever, how many here are your parents? Any parents in the audience here? And sometimes you have little kids and they become very impatient. Anybody have that experience? Any, any parents have impatient kids? Anybody have that? That's all, every kid's impatient. They have to learn patience, right? And you're telling them, you're trying to explain to them, listen, just relax and trust me, this is going to work out. And do they have a problem with that? Yes, they do. Why? Because they're impatient. And you know, it's the same thing with us and God. We get impatient with God, you know? God, why aren't you doing something quicker? Do something, right? All right. Psalm 22, 9 says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. So the psalmist now reminds himself of something very powerful. As far back as he can remember, God has been faithful. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a beautiful old hymn. It says, count your blessings, name them one by one. In the middle of the dark night of the soul, when you think God has abandoned you, I want you to sit down and make a list of every good thing God ever did for you in the past. And as you start listing those things, that list is going to keep growing until finally you're going to go, okay, God, I get it. You can, you can handle this. You've been helpful. You've been helping me in the past. You're going to get me through this experience in my life. Finally, we see the physical anguish that is endured. You know, you know, a lot of people live in pain and struggle physically. Isn't that true? Sure. They've prayed and prayed for healing, but they remain in their condition. For still others, they're beaten for their faith. How often do we go to extremes in our understanding? You know, for some people, they believe physical sufferings are a virtue, and for others, they see it as a lack of faith. Isn't that it? How many think those are two extreme positions? Suffering's a virtue, or it's a lack of faith. At times, it can be both, but often we struggle with the fact that life is not neat and tidy. Sin and evil affect our world in ways that people who, through no fault of their own, are touched and impacted by people's sin and evil. There's just a lot of sin and evil in our world, and it touches all of us. It affects us. You know, a spouse cheats on us, abandons us. A family's, you know, a life is totally affected by someone who is inebriated. They're driving a vehicle they shouldn't be, and it becomes a weapon and kills people. A terminal illness strikes a person who's lived a moral and healthy life. And then there are those who are attacked by others simply because they're living a godly life. Wow. You know, 
He says here in verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. You know, we think it's strange that people will attack us. Folks, I'll tell you something. If you're living a godly life, you will suffer persecution. It's just going to, it's just inevitable. You know, I remember when I was in Bible college, we were in Seattle, and I was out sharing the gospel in the streets of Seattle, and my dad was freaked out. He just, he just goes, you're going to get killed down there. It's Friday night, there's all kinds of transactions going on, there's gangs, there's, you know, there's drugs, there's, you know, people with weapons. I mean, it's a dangerous place. But you know, in my naivety, I'm a new Christian, I'm invincible, you know, I go out there, I'm sharing the gospel, and I just thought, nothing bad's going to happen to me. And then one night, my bubble burst. It popped. You know, because I was down there one night sharing, and this one person who was quite inebriated wanted me to give him some money, but, which I knew he was going to go get some more to drink, and I decided not to give it to him. And he got violent and started swinging away. And so I was just trying to protect myself, and pretty soon, you know, how many know when you get a little action like that in the street corner, pretty soon people are gathering around, you know? So they just said, go ahead and hit him, Brother Moses. I mean, I had all kinds of <laughs> champions there, you know, telling me to lay it off. You know, and, and I felt bad because this guy, eventually, he was inebriated, ran out of steam, he was doubled over, he was choking, he couldn't breathe, and I felt terrible, you know? I was, you know, I didn't give him any money, but I, I knew he was going to go get some more alcohol. But what came out of this was a realization in my mind. Hey, this is a dangerous place I'm in. Anything could happen. You could lay down your life here for Jesus. Right? New awakening. Because up until that point, I thought I was invincible. Now, I'm not, you know, I, I still went down there, but I, I had a new understanding. Hey, this is dangerous stuff we're doing down here. And by the grace of God, we're here. Now, let me move on to the second thing. Well... Second thing we discover is the height of human delight. This is the flip side. Only those who have known great pain can really experience great joy. After the darkest hours come the brightest moments in life. Isn't that neat? It's the way it works, you know? You know, our appreciation for life is deeply intensified when life is threatened. How many know that's true? You know, Ronald Rollheiser shares a story. He had performed a wedding for a young woman who had who was really a cancer survivor. She had, you know, in the final years of high school, she was athletic, but in that last year, she dropped down to 80 pounds. And over the years, through prayer and some medical treatment, she improved and was eventually able to live a normal life again. Now she was getting married. And she was asked in a public interview, if given the choice, because she was quite a well-known athlete in their community, if she could give the illness back so as to have the life she could have had without it, you know what her answer was? No. I wouldn't, for through it, I learned about love. She was sustained by the love of other people. She was taught that there are worse things in life than cancer. How do you learn these things? You go through them. And so sometimes God delivers us from our troubles, and sometimes God allows us to go through our troubles, but he helps us all the way through. And that's what we need to understand. I love that psalm. It says, joy comes you know, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, and my prayer today has been simply this, that you and I would experience God's joy in the midst of our night season of difficulty and trial. Listen to what he says here in verse 26. 
God will sustain and provide the grace to carry us through. The poor will eat, he says, and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise them. May your hearts live forever. John Newton wrote an amazing hymn. We sing it, Amazing Grace. But you know what the line I really like? You know, yeah, we've been saved. You know, beginning he said, I once was lost, but now I'm, you know, I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But then he says this, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. What does that tell you? He's giving you an accurate description of the Christian life. There are dangers, toils, and snares. You see, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So I want to just shatter an expectation that you may have faultily picked up in your thinking. And it's simply this, that when, I'm, when, when, my, when I arrive, all my troubles will be behind me. There'll never be a problem again. I want to shatter that. I've lived a little bit longer than some of you, and I can honestly say you'll never get to that point until the day you're in heaven with Jesus. You will always have some measure of difficulty and challenge that you will be faced with in order for you to have to trust God to go through or be delivered from that experience. You need to understand that right off the bat. In other words, learn to be comfortable, learn to enjoy the journey in spite of the few bumps on the road. And if you have the right attitude and learn to praise God, regardless of what comes your way, you're going to enjoy life a lot more. And as a matter of fact, if you get to that stage in your life where you don't allow what life is throwing at you to define you, you will be able to rise above all the challenges that you're experiencing because your faith in God will sustain you no matter what happens in your life. Well, I'm going to close with this. I can remember as a young person, I grew up in a home that, Addiction was a part of our family. That was just a part of our life. How many here you grew up in a home where addiction was a part of your life? You grew up in a home like that. Can you understand all the difficult things that you experienced as a child? It wasn't your doing. And I want to say to all of you, it wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything to bring it on. You just happened to be in that home. You could get angry and say, God, why did you allow me to be born in a home of addiction? But I'm going to tell you this. Don't even go down that road. It's a waste of time. I'll tell you what it's done for me. It's given me a greater degree of understanding and empathy towards other people. You know, I'm far less judgmental than a lot of people because I lived in a lot of dysfunction and I just go, I get where people are coming from and how they got there. I see the effects of addiction in people's lives. That's why I'm so against it. Because I see the pain it causes, especially to the ones who are not engaged in it, the children who are suffering because of it. And I witness it over and over and over again. Now, I'm not here to berate my family and to say, you know, they were terrible. I understand. Sure, they struggle with this stuff. But what happens when you're in a family like that and you don't have recourse to a real strong faith in God, one of the things that happens is you become a survivor. And however you learn how to survive, it's interesting. But one of the things, one of the mechanisms I used with, with, was withdrawal and self-pity. I always felt sorry for myself, you know? Some of you can't even relate to that. So I had to finally come to a stage in my development where I stopped running from my problems and started facing them. Now, I'm glad I learned that in my late teens and early 20s. I stopped running, and I began to face every problem that came my way because eventually I gave my life to Christ. I discovered God's, 
Grace, just like that teacher showed me, I discovered it in God. His forgiveness and grace in my life. And then I was able to have grace to handle the trials that came and the troubles that came my way. And I eventually stopped being frustrated and blaming other people and started taking responsibility for my part in my problems. And that was very liberating. Amen? Amen. It is freeing. You know, because what happens so often is it's just easier to blame somebody else. This is why I'm having this problem. This is what, instead of doing that, that's so counterproductive. I just said, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. What do I need to learn? What, how can I grow from this experience? What's my part in the problem? What am I doing to contribute to the problem? That's a good question. You know, I love that Negro spiritual. He says, not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Amen. You know, when we stop looking around and blaming other people, say, Lord, you know what? I'm the one that needs help. And regardless of what other people are doing wrong, I need help. And when you start seeing it that way, change can start happening. You'll change. And as fa- the, the reason when you, what happens when you change, your circumstances begin to change because you look at them differently. You have a different lens and you become part of the solution and not just part of the problem. You are starting to mature and grow up and that's what God is looking for in our life. So why don't we stand this morning. You know, I really believe in my heart that there are people here, you are experiencing challenges in your life. You are experiencing difficulties in your life. You are suffering things. Maybe you feel misunderstood. Maybe you just, you know, there's lots that goes on in our lives. You know, we said earlier, some of you are not rejoicing. Some of you are lamenting. Some of you are suffering. And I want you to be honest. I'm going to have you do something very courageous. Don't worry about other people. But God spoke to you today. See, I believe that God speaks through human people. I believe God uses his word to speak right into your hearts. And God is speaking to you this morning. And what he's telling you is, I have not abandoned you. I have not forsaken you. I'm right there with you. I'm allowing things to happen in your life for a reason. I want you to trust me. You know, ultimately, this is going to turn out far better than you realize. But right now, you don't see it. And you're here today, and God's been speaking to you and showing you. No use blaming God or questioning God. He's calling you to trust Him. And you're going to say, you know, this morning, I heard God's voice challenging me to put my trust in Him. And that's you today. I want you just to slip out of your pews real quick, right now, one minute. We're just going to come to the front. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to go. That's you. God's speaking to you right now. God's speaking to you. I know God's speaking to a lot of people today. You know, I felt so deeply impressed on Tuesday night to preach this sermon. I felt so deeply impressed. This is what I need to say today. There's a reason for it. Disappointment heartache, sickness, loss, betrayal, just pressures, difficulty. How are we going to handle these things? We're going to fall apart. We're going to come unglued. We're going to say, Lord, here's my life. I know you're there. I'm going to trust you. Just keep coming. Come on. It's good. Be courageous. We're going to pray. What you're saying today is, God, 
by coming forward, you're saying, I'm going to just trust you, Lord. That's my declaration today. I'm going to just trust you. Doesn't mean I have the answers. Doesn't mean I'm going to figure it out. I just made a decision. This is my declaration. By coming forward, you're making this declaration. I'm going to trust you with my troubles. I'm going to trust you with my problems. I'm looking to you, Father. Let me pray with you. And you know what? You don't look, all the congregation, look around. See how many people are here? Think about this. The Bible says when one member suffers, we're all suffering. These are our brothers and sisters right now who are suffering. And you know, we've been here. Isn't that true? I've been here many times suffering. I get it. And you know what it'll do to you? It deepens you. It gives you a deeper empathy for people in trouble. You develop compassion for other people. You don't, you know, how do you get compassion? You got to, you learn to suffer with people because you've suffered. You now know what it's like. Oh, I know what suffering is like. I felt it. And I know what grace is like. I've experienced it. That's why I'm going to show grace. You go, well, they don't deserve it. I don't think that way. I go, they need it. That's what I think. They need it. Don't think about deserving. Just show grace. Our church made a decision with regarding benevolence. We show a lot of grace to people. Why? You go, well, they're just, they're just you know, doing this and that. And I'm going, yeah, but they still need grace. They still need grace. They need the love of God. They need to know somebody loves them. Somebody cares for them, even in the brokenness of their lives. So all the rest of us, just reach out your hand. Saints of God, I want you to pray for your brothers and sisters. Just reach out to them and say, Lord, I just pray right now that the arms of Almighty God would sweep around my brothers and sisters right now. Just sweep around them. Touch their hearts. Touch their lives. Strengthen them. Comfort them. Encourage them. Help them, Lord, walk through this dark time in their life. Through the struggle, through the frustration, through the anger, the upset, the disappointment. The confusion, the perplexity. Lord, I'm doing what's right, but how come this isn't working? Lord, I pray today that you would bring hope and healing and grace. I pray today as I've been praying. Lord, all day long I've been praying this morning. I've been saying, God, may this be the end of the dark night. And may joy come this morning in their lives. I pray in Jesus' name. I pray hope will overwhelm them. I pray despair will dispel. I pray that discouragement and depression would flee in Jesus' name and hope would fill their hearts. That they would know your love that is beyond human comprehension. Help them to experience it. Help them to know today that you know their address, you know their sorrow, their struggle, and the fact that you talk to them today says you care about them. Help them to know you care. You have not left them. You have not forsaken them. But you are doing a deep work in their souls. Help them, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.